Welcome to Give Theory a Chance. In this episode, we are joined by Neil Gong. Neil is an assistant professor of sociology at UC San Diego, a member of the Michigan Society of Fellows, and winner of the 2020 American Sociological Association's Junior Theorist of the Year Award. In our conversation, Neil introduces the work of Norbert Elias, reflects on both the challenges and inspirations of his historical writing and grand theory, and discusses how the concept of the threshold of repugnance provided guidance in Neil's ethnography of No Rules Combat Clubs. Thanks for joining us today, Neil. Well, thanks for having me, Kyle. I'm really excited to be here. So we are here today to talk about Norbert Elias. Could you just give us a short introduction to who he is, or better yet, what he's known for? Sure. So Norbert Elias was a German-Jewish intellectual born in 1897. He started in medicine and philosophy, but later gravitated towards sociology. And he was a rather obscure figure during his main working years, but went on to be seen as one of the great theorists of the 20th century. His approach is grand in the vein of the Marx, Webers, and Durkheims who want to explain big things. So Elias is attempting to bring together large-scale historical processes like the emergence of the state uh, with the most micro-processes pertaining to social psychology, how people regulate their bodies, how they experience and control their emotions. And his most famous work, uh, The Civilizing Process, was first published in 1939 to actually very little fanfare. And like many books written during World War II, it couldn't really gain an audience, there's too much going on. And Elias was also in the process, a bit after that, of escaping Nazi Germany. And so he lands in Britain, eventually becomes a lecturer, and it's not really until a reprinting and then English translation in the late 60s and then the second volume in the 70s that he gains worldwide fame. And then after that, from his retirement on, he has this phenomenally productive publication period uh, where he works on everything from the sociology of science to the sociology of sport to the sociology of time. But just so you have a sense of what his, his main ideas and what he's known for is, it's again the civilizing process. And in this book, his main claim is that the European habitus, or learned standards of behavior and feeling that becomes second nature, changed immensely over the last 500 years from when he was writing. He argues that people began to self-regulate their behavior and emotions in new ways. And these control of impulses and emotions started as social constraints, external constraints, but increasingly become internalized as self-constraint. So he tracks how violence declines in everyday life and gets moved to the fringes of society. Uh, people change things like their table manners. You know, uh, you should no longer just stab things with a knife and put it in your mouth. You should use a fork and try these other things. People hide their bodies uh, and increasingly become ashamed of things that they weren't ashamed of in the past. Things that are actually pretty taken for granted bodily things like urinating or blowing one's nose. These have to be, again, removed to the margins of society or no longer directly in public. And so he's tracking these things. Uh, methodologically by looking at manners books, uh, advice on how people can appear to have proper etiquette, things like this, uh, and what it means to be a civilized person. And, and I should note that this term civilization isn't normative. It's certainly not him claiming that European people are civilized in the sense that they're better than everyone else who is a barbarian. Uh, but he's interested in the fact that Europeans came to define this idea of civilization and then see themselves through this light of becoming civilized. And then they forget that these are learned standards and behaviors and then start to see them as, as innate to, to European culture. And so what makes Elias especially interesting is that he moves from this kind of history of manners to try to understand where it comes from. And his claim is that these changes in emotion and bodily management are historically co-emergent with state formation. So I'll read a quote, just a brief quote, and then, and then say something about it. Okay, perfect. So this is Elias. If in this or that region, the power of central authority grows, 
if over a larger or smaller area people are forced to live at peace with one another, the molding of the affects and the standards of demands upon the management of emotions are gradually changed as well. So in maybe simpler terms, it's the idea that being forced to live at peace with other people uh, means that you have to learn how to manage your emotions around them. And so he's talking about you know, the Weberian conception of the state as the organization with the monopoly of legitimate violence. So when a new state secures the monopoly of violence, people learn to suppress things that perhaps they did impulsively in the past. So for instance, you can no longer attack someone who's offended your honor. And equally importantly, one no longer really has to do this. So you know, it's not as though every store owner has to have an enforcer to threaten someone if they don't pay something on time. The state ostensibly will do it for you. And of course, not everyone's going to have equal access to the state's protected and violent capacities. But this, this does become a new possibility. And so for Elias, this then has these longer range effects. So this facilitates greater interconnectedness between people. So they become more comfortable engaging in, say, market exchange with strangers because the state will enforce contracts. And then you have what he would call these lengthening chains of interdependence. So through these market relationships, as well as just more general change in society, we become interdependent with bigger and bigger groups of people. And then one has to become more sensitive to the needs of others. And so he also shows how this changes what it would mean to attain status. So you have a warrior elite that once a centralized state pacifies a territory is no longer feuding within the territory. And instead, these warriors will have to essentially learn how to deal in royal court. So you have to learn how to control your emotions, have lots of foresight, these kind of Machiavellian plannings. And then for Elias, the shift happens where this external constraint, where you're no longer allowed to use violence, um, then becomes internalized. So people don't just see violence as something that you're no longer allowed to do. It's something that's suddenly offensive or low class or uncouth. And uh, another way of thinking about what Elias is up to here is that I mean, I, I've been calling, I'm not sure if other people think of him in these terms, but uh, like a psychoanalytic Weberian. So there's a lot of like psychoanalytic Marxist works, but this is to me, like the first person who's really trying to understand how things like the emergence of the state track with changes in social psychology. And so he's drawing on this Freudian psychology of the idea of like the superego, the way the norms and judgments of the society become internalized. And for him, these things, changes in social structures and uh, the superego are coterminous. And I'll just let me say one more thing about this. One way that Elias gets misread is this idea that he's claiming all violence has gone down. And that's not at all what he said. So the idea for Elias is that as states pacify territories internally, um, they're constantly feuding with other states at the borders. And so there's war happening perhaps at the same time that there's relative peace within a territory and with increased technology, there could be quite a bit of destructiveness with the violence at the borders. But for the most part, he would argue, violence continues, but it gets moved to the margins of societies to prisons, to being performed on disadvantaged people, or, or at the borders of war. His claim is that overall, in everyday life, interpersonal violence has declined. And so the civilizing process is his attempt to show how that very emotional and individual experiential process is happening at the same time as, as these bigger things we think of as structural historical things like state formation. As you're giving this comprehensive overview, which is incredibly useful, you can see how sociological his thinking is, and you can see how he's making these connections between what you described as this more grand theory and this long historical arc and the experience of the individual in society. But do you get a sense that he's widely read in the larger discipline? Yeah, so my sense is that he's actually not that widely read. Um, he is famous enough that people will maybe nod towards him. 
he's a major figure in British sociology and Dutch sociology. Um, I think he, yeah, he's much more commonly read in, in Europe and elsewhere than, than in the United States. Yeah, my sense is, I mean, I didn't read Elias in any coursework. It's something I was sort of pointed to and then slowly made my way through. But yeah, it wasn't part of my graduate education. Okay, so then thinking about how you didn't read him as part of the curriculum, but someone pointed you towards the direction of Elias, how did that end up happening? So why were you pointed that direction? And then what was it like when you did first read his work? Yeah, so I was working on a senior project as an undergrad about the emergence of mixed martial arts is some interest you and I certainly share, and what it meant to have cage fighting become this new popular sport or pseudo sport. And someone suggested, I, oh, I should read Norbert Elias, The Civilizing Process, because he'd written about sport, but also just this would you know, help me understand what was going on. It actually didn't help me at all yeah. at first. I, I, <laughs> <laughs> I have to say, I couldn't make heads or tails of it. It seemed really boring. You know, it's this long dry. The first part is all about, you know, different definitions of culture and civilization in different European places. And I could not see how this was supposed to help me understand contemporary cage fighting. And it feels really dry. You're reading all this stuff about, yeah, uh, how people, you know, fold napkins or whatever. Yeah, you can have a whole chapter on how someone is supposed to blow their nose or, or not blow their nose, right? Yeah. <laughs> With a level of historical uh, detail included. Exactly. So it was it was actually sort of confounding me. Like, why, why was I given this book? Uh, I did then, I think, read some of his essays on sport, which were much more applicable, of course. And that helped me make start to make sense of the civilizing process thing where he's looking at what he would call sportization, which is the rationalization of sport. And then also how that changes the affect and emotion of those who are involved. And that I started to be able to grasp onto. But the big book, yeah, I really struggled with. Okay, so considering that experience where it wasn't immediately clear what the value of this writing was and considering how easy it was to be lost in that density of historical detail, what drew you back to his writings? Was it finding that section on sport where you started to make those connections or why did you continue? Because as we'll get to, you end up writing an article that draws directly on his ideas. So why continue with Elias? When I was writing the piece that would eventually be this article, How to Fight Without Rules, which is, which is in Social Problems, which is an ethnography of ostensibly no rules fight club, I kept coming into contact with this wider literature on combat sports that all drew from Elias. And so part of the, the big debate was, yeah, is mixed martial arts and other limited rules combat sports indicating some sort of reversal of this long rationalization of sports? Where, So for Elias and his followers, you went from these limited rules fight sports like the ancient uh, Pancration to contemporary boxing and wrestling with lots of rules that indicates this rationalization and reduction of violence. So is cage fighting some sort of reversal? And so there are people who argued, yes, this is a decivilizing process. And others who argued, actually, no, it just looks that way. But really, there's still a great deal of, of self-control, despite the trope of having no rules. And so I kind of entered into that way, that it was partially a setup for this paper where I said, OK, well, I can have, bring this ethnographic evidence about a no rules group. And then you went beyond just studying, for instance, going into an MMA gym, which a lot of the debates were about mixed martial arts. You intentionally went to a group that would be seen as even more violent and less rule bound. So is, is that correct? Yeah, or at least that's, you know, that's how you justify things in papers later to say that your your case is really important or something. But yeah. <laughs> 
so really, I, I, you know, I was I was studying this group, and and I was interested in them in part because they claim to be more extreme than even the most you know uh, limited rules combat sports. But it did give me this nice leverage because one of the issues in the debates over the civilization process in MMA was that people are talking about contemporary MMA, which is quite rule bound and regulated and rationalized. But the thing that was of interest was the initial burst of the early UFCs or fighting in Brazil, things like this. And so I was drawn back, and then I actually tried to, this time, really sit down and read more of Elias himself. And, and what I found was that this is, you know, after having gone through graduate training, being a little older, I actually saw it quite compatible with the kind of ethnography I wanted to do. So something that, like, as you're saying, is quite boring, how people blow their noses suddenly seemed to me as, oh, this is, it's actually like a historical ethnography. It's like, it's a history of embodied practices. And this is something that I think is quite you can certainly dovetail with, with an ethnographic sensibility. And so even though he's interested in these long-range historical processes, that then gives me a way to think about maybe the history of the kinds of embodied practices I'm seeing. So the second time around, I started to make the connections and then actually thought some of the articles I was reading that were trying to evaluate what the meaning of MMA is were too focused on things like injury rates as opposed to the things that Elias himself was interested in, which are the way that people actually engage with their bodies and emotions. Okay, so tell us a little bit more about what you ended up finding or what your conclusion was, because it's really interesting, because like you were saying, from an outsider perspective, one could easily imagine you making that argument that you thought that you might make before you really got involved in the group, right? This is an example of this de-civilizing, it's, uh, it's pushing against the forward progress of increased symbolism, increased rationalization. But what you're saying is it actually fit well within that. So how does that help us understand how that works? Sure. So I'll also talk about one of the, the key concepts I, I draw from Elias. So what he calls the changing threshold of repugnance or the threshold of shame. So this is the idea, you know, at what point do people have an embodied reaction to something as, as repugnant? It grosses them out or to doing something becomes shameful. And why this became really interesting to me was because in this group, people claimed that there were no rules. There are no regulations. There's no one to stop you from doing anything. And yet, as I joined the club and learned how to do that type of fighting, it was actually quite controlled and quite patterned and in some ways started to resemble sport fighting. And what I became interested in is that, okay, even if there aren't these rules, these formalized rules, there is still a point at which people decide that things are unacceptable. And I was looking for these moments. And for Elias, it's about this change over time, you know, that... Uh, in the past, people were used to butchering animals, whereas a, a lot of folks today who buy their meat at the grocery store, it, it would be repugnant or it would be quite difficult. Um, and so you see these shifts across time. And so for me, I was trying to figure out where do these fighters who are ostensibly looking for the most extreme violent fighting, you know, where do they sort of blanch and say, oh, we can't do that. And I would start to see these moments. And sometimes it was articulated. For instance, someone would show a move where you take a stick and try to club someone in the back of the head. And then someone else would say, well, maybe if you're defending your family in the street, but, you know, we can't do that among friends here. It provoked that kind of reaction. Or there was a whole debate over whether we should have dull or sharp knives. So one of the ideas is that in a real street fight, if you're trying to grapple with someone, they might pull a pocket knife on you and stab you. And so how do you train for that to make a realistic scenario? Because we can't actually all be stabbing each other. And so there's this debate over whether we should have dull knives or semi-sharp knives. And some people wanted the semi-sharp ones. Uh, but then at one point, someone gets stabbed in an arm vein. It's gushing. Uh, there's a video of this. And people don't like it, right? They react quite harshly to it. 
And so to me, it's like that's one way of starting to track all of these embodied reactions that then later become articulated as an honor code so that both the embodied reactions and the honor code are part of what ends up replacing formal rules such that this no rules fighting still ends up looking to some degree like sport fighting. And so in some of these cases, it was actually negotiated explicitly with people sitting down and saying, these are the type of things that will allow and not allow. And then in other cases, it was more of this informal communication where you simply did not do that type of thing. Or, or how was that communicated? What the level of acceptance or where you cross that threshold? Yeah. So sometimes it, it was formally debated. You know, people would have a conversation and it might be on a web forum or in other cases. Yeah, it would just it would come to be that something was not acceptable. I once had a dull blade and lunge at someone's face and I, I got yelled down because people just react like, oh, that you can't do that. And I had no idea. I mean, I actually felt bad about it afterwards because I also don't want to stab someone in the eye. Mm -hmm. But it's not necessarily articulated or then it is when you sort of, when you cross the line. And this ends up being a bit like the way ethnomethodologists talk about breaching experiments, that you don't really mm -hmm. know what the norms or the rules of a, of a space are. And neither do some of the participants until someone's crossed it. And then they have this kind of, again, embodied reaction of, oh, that's wrong, or that makes me uncomfortable, or that's repugnant. Uh, and I think this is, for me as an ethnographer, is a really interesting meeting point between Elias, who's looking at where these thresholds of repugnance change over time, um, and ethnomethodologists who are trying to track this or even provoke it in, in contemporary life, where you're prodding at people to, to see what makes them uncomfortable. Um, and so I think thinking with Elias and this more ethnomethodological perspective as an ethnographer helps me try to think, you know, maybe there's a history and a longer path toward what people are reacting to and then how they create the new norms in the contemporary moment. Yeah, so that's fascinating. And I'm, I'm not sure if this next question is going to make sense, but I'm just, I'm trying to work through what's going on in these spaces because it's interesting because people are seeking out a space which specifically is being advertised as not having rules and so, but they're still carrying the norms they have in other areas of their life into that space. So I guess their experience is both rejecting the threshold that would normally exist, but also reproducing it to a degree. Is that, is that right? Or Yeah, that's absolutely right. And I think what I was also sort of perplexed by this for a while. And what helped make sense of it to some degree is that a, a lot of the participants in this particular fight club, they wouldn't necessarily call themselves a fight club identify politically as libertarians. Mm -hmm. And there's this, this real interest in, in the idea of total self-governance, that you wouldn't have this outside authority telling you what to do. And so the idea of the space is that anything could go, and potentially one could be stabbing someone's eye out or clubbing someone in the back of the head, but we don't do it. And then the narrative becomes, we don't do it because we're honorable people. We have self-governed in this proper way. And the only way you can really have the satisfaction of, of the ritual of showing how you're both a badass and self-governing is to be in the space where anything could have happened. But of course, we all know that. But you chose not to. Yeah. So yeah. it puts the power on the individual rather than some sort of body telling you you cannot do this thing. Yes. Yeah. And it's also interesting when you're describing it too, thinking about other, I'm just thinking in comparison to more regulated forms of combat sport, where in a sense, you actually might be able to even go harder or with less restraint, but within those rules. So when you put on the boxing gloves, when people spar, sometimes they do go as hard as they actually can, but within the constraint of having those boxing gloves. So by taking that away, it's almost like you can do more things, but you also have to have more of that so-called code when you're doing those things. You have that knife, but you can't actually use it any way that you want to. 
I think that's exactly right. And one of the things that the participants talked about is that in, say, big prize money, mixed martial arts, you'll see someone knock an opponent out and keep hitting them. And they're waiting for the ref to pull them off. And the idea is, well, I don't know I've won until the ref has stopped the fight. And to the people in this fight group, that's a dishonorable thing. You know, um, That's when you're relying too much on an external authority, whereas you should have already known that you'd won the fight and there's no reason to continue to, to hurt someone. So actually there is this way in which reducing certain rules does not necessarily lead to more violence because it then will get replaced by the sense of repugnance and then by an honor code. Yeah, no, this is really fascinating. I think I'm about to repeat exactly what you've already said before, but I'm still just <laughs> thinking it through because um, I'm so fascinated by this question. And it's it's really interesting, the shift that you're making through this study between saying, yeah, if you measure violence just by injury and blood, you'll come up with a very different answer than if you're measuring violence by control and, in a sense, uh, the creation of norms within that space. So is that is am I repeating you correctly, I guess? <laughs> That's my question. Uh, yeah, yeah, no, that was articulated really well. I mean, I, I, I'm not sure I use those words, but I think that's, I think that's right. And what you kind of learn is that, I mean, people still get hurt. And so maybe the worst thing I saw was someone took a, a stick shot to a kneecap and it, it fractured their kneecap and that terrified me. Uh, but it's like, what was the intention behind it? Because there's intentionally breaking someone's knee and then there's, well, we were going hard and it happened, but you know what, then I cared for my opponent afterwards or something. So, so the same physical action can have very different meanings and understanding significance is, is going to, as much be, and I think Elias would agree that there's a big difference between people lashing out because they can't control their, their emotions and someone in a highly rationalized fashion committing acts of violence. They have different significance and they require a different bearing to do. Yeah. And it, it does comment on the thresholds that we have in different areas of our life, because I'm thinking about when you describe that injury, the idea of someone they, they hit the person in the knee with it was with a, a stick that you said. Yeah. Um, I have a more visceral reaction than I would seeing a 300 pound linebacker tackle a quarterback at full speed and knocking them unconscious, which could do much more damage. And in terms of the force inflicted, it's significantly more. But I think if you took the average person and said, watch these two acts, which one do you respond to? We respond more negatively to that hitting someone with the stick or the club, right? That's saying something also. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think, yeah, there's this why we tell ourselves that in football, the purpose isn't to really hurt the person, whereas the purpose is to hurt them in combat sports. But I mean, I think the purpose is to hurt people in football. Uh, and that's that's to some degree sublimated or buried through the rest of the discourse or the way that we've rationalized and created these tightly bounded rule sets so that we can step away from seeing the violence for what it is. Okay, so the next question is another one that I, is a little bit more abstract, but I'm always curious how people work through this. So when you're in the site doing this research and drawing on these ideas from Norbert Elias, did you find yourself, were you building on his ideas and in a sense supporting them? Or did you find yourself calling into question his ideas? And in a sense, it's basically asking, what do we do as sociologists taking these grand works, these grand claims into the field? Yeah, that's a great question. So I tend to think of these concepts as tools and to see if they do something for me. So I found that thinking with the threshold of repugnance helped reveal things that were happening that were different than when I kept looking for formal rules and what people would say, um, started looking for these kinds of embodied reactions. But, you know, I to some degree wonder if, if Elias, I mean, he, he because he's interested in these long range historical things, you know, he might sort of question what I would be doing with using this in this very micro contemporary moment. 
And that's okay. I mean, for me, it's it's more like, does the tool help me to make sense of something I'm seeing or to give me a new angle? And sometimes you need to get a new tool. Sometimes you need to sort of smash the tool until it works for you in that moment. But I don't really see myself as trying to prove him right or refute him. For me, it's more driven by I mean, the, the paper is framed around this idea of the civilizing process, but for me, the meat of it is the practical questions of how do you fight without rules? How does governance work uh, when ostensibly there is no authority in the space? And you're working with such a, a different type of data as you're bringing up, right? So he yes. has to deal with literature on how people did act or are supposed to act, and you're able to get into this very embodied experience, not only of the other participants, but of you yourself being in there as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that Elias is a great example of what one can do with historical ethnography, but it is ultimately about, you know, he's drawing in these manners books, which is prescribed behaviors. This is what you should be doing. And then he, of course, is going to extrapolate, well, if they're telling you not to do this with blowing your nose, it must mean people were doing it. But that's, of course, very different than watching people do it or being taught how to blow your nose yourself. Mm. So, yeah, they, they're happening. And it, yeah, the, the, there are definitely methodological differences there. Now, you've mentioned the ethnomethodologists. I'm curious, are there other theorists that you see Elias working particularly well with, especially considering that you are going into this kind of ethnographic exploration of a group? Yeah. So, I mean, I think that two theorists and two major theorists of the 20th century who seem to dovetail nicely with, with Elias would be Bourdieu and Foucault. Uh, so the focus on habitus and these socially inculcated dispositions and how things become second nature and so you know, maybe the difference there would be Bourdieu is often looking at, you know, maybe cross-sections of, of contemporary society. He, he is more of a historical thinker than maybe he's often given credit for. But for Elias, it's about, you know, a sort of generalized habitus across time. But so there's plenty of overlap there. The other thinker who, who I think there's tensions, but there's also a lot of overlap would be Michel Foucault. And I mean, they're both interested in the way that, you know, new social forms like the state co-emerge with the kinds of people who can fit in with it or be governed by it, and they come at it with a different vocabulary. I mean, I, th I think that, in a sense, too, the idea of the looking for the threshold of repugnance, uh, at what point do things become uh, an embodied problem for people, also overlaps with the way Foucaultians talk about how things become problematized historically. When and why does it become a problem? Uh, when does, like, say, childhood masturbation become a thing everyone's obsessed with? Or... When does, you know, when um, having mad people in the streets versus segregated, why does that become a problem? But I find the, the Elijah vocabulary more experientially evocative and less discursively focused in trying to get to these, these embodied parts. I'd say that maybe the big difference with the Foucaultians is the Foucaultians are usually interested in these sort of apocal shifts. You know, um, we tortured people to punish them and now we discipline them with timetables. Whereas for Elias, he's interested in not these grand switches, but like how those switches happen over long stretches of time. And again, he also doesn't think that violence disappeared in the prison. It just becomes marginalized and out of public view, but it's still there. So those are probably the two. I should also say, if people hear this and they're thinking, wow, a lot of the stuff Elias is saying sounds like what you get out of Bourdieu or Foucault, to remember that he's doing this 30 years before either of them. As a side note, you've recently published an article where you were drawing specifically on the ideas of Foucault. And I'm curious because you're saying that you can see these ways that people like Bourdieu and Foucault work with Elias. So when you're writing that article, do you directly engage with Elias's ideas or, or how do you see it informing what you did? Yeah. So again, this threshold of repugnance idea has just become a sensitizing concept for me. And it absolutely informed what I did in this article. So this is a recent piece in American Sociological Review called Between Tolerant Containment and Concerted Constraint, Managing Madness for the City and the Privileged Family. And it's a comparison of 
community mental health treatment in public safety net clinics versus elite private clinics for the wealthy. And I was really interested, again, in this sort of threshold question of at what point do, say, these public safety net social workers decide that someone's behavior is a problem and needs to be fixed? And actually, there's a great deal of tolerance for ostensibly self-destructive behaviors um, around treatment noncompliance and, say, using drugs or drinking. Um, and then a completely different set of thresholds at which for wealthy clients in these, in these elite clinics. And so I'm not actually talking about the threshold of repugnance in terms of the 500 years and how are people relating to their bodies. But as a sensitizing concept, I actually found that really useful, again, in this sort of experientially, like seeing when people react to certain behavior. And then it dovetails to some degree with Foucaultian notions of, you know, when and how things become problematized. But I, I find it uh, more sort of supple for dealing with everyday life than the Foucaultian vocabulary. So that paper is largely framed in terms of Foucaultian questions of power, but Elias was certainly there for me. Yeah, and I think to me, that's the greatest compliment to a theorist. It's the theorist who shapes the way you see the world, not in the sense that you're directly citing, you know, this page number from an article from this year, but instead, that's just always with you, right? That's when you know that a theorist really shaped the way that you let you live or the way that you perceive everything. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. It's, I mean, I guess it's part of like my scholarly toolkit or habitus or whatever you want to call it now. It's something I bring to how I analyze pretty much anything, I think. And it gives me that, yes, I'm doing this ethnographic sensibility, but always thinking about what is the history of these practices and emotional reactions that, say, led to it being common for people to react a certain way. Final question, thinking back on your own project, thinking about your experiences reading the work, if you were talking to someone, whether they were someone outside of academia, whether it was a, an interested undergrad or grad student or another faculty member, what would you tell them would be the reason that they should pick up these dense historical volumes, uh, picking up the civilizing process, picking up the quest for excitement, or picking up any of the other essays that Elias had? Yeah, so I mean, as I said, I'm not sure I would, given my own experience of trying to read this, even after I finished undergrad, and before I'd gone through graduate training, um, I'm not sure I would recommend the civilizing process, but some of those essays, the quest for excitement, the ones on sport. And I think what I come back to is that you know, people often talk about breaking through these dichotomies of the micro and the macro and the history and the present, self and society, structure, agency, whatever, nature and nurture, and try to come up with ways to do it. And I actually think that Elias models a way to do it that's pretty awe-inspiring, that the scope from the most personal, experiential to hundreds of years of state building, and it works. I mean, it's not that he's necessarily right about everything, but it to me, it's sort of a reminder of like what great sociological thinking can be. That's a, a perfect place to end. So thank you again for joining us to talk about Norbert uh, Elias, and thank you for introducing that article, which I will, in the notes to the podcast, I will share the link to the article. For people who aren't looking at the notes, can you remind us the name of the article in the journal that it appeared on? Sure. It came out in Social Problems in 2015, and it's called How to Fight Without Rules on Civilized Violence in Decivilized Spaces. Okay, perfect. And I will be assigning uh, this podcast and your article in class this semester, so I will let you know how that goes. Oh, great. Well, thanks so much for having me. It's a lot of fun. Cool. Thank you. Appreciation goes to Jeffrey Gilbert for providing our theme music, undergraduate sociologists Beth Heberger, Alicia Rios, and Simone Graham for their help with the project, and most importantly, on behalf of me, Kyle Green, thank you for giving theory a chance.